Hi, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Digital Storm podcast, an original podcast of Fikra Studio. As a kid, I idolized heroes like Fela Kuti and Nelson Mandela. I always wanted to bring about change in this world. As I grew up, I learned about the cost that these people had to pay to change the status quo. This scared me. It made me stay in my comfort zone and not really want to speak up. But at times, it was inspiring how these people and many others used their words and the power of information to create a movement beyond themselves. There are activists in all forms. Some of them we hear about and some have had their voices silenced while others have had a voice that's not loud enough. In this cacophony of the social media world, we have a new ability to be more independent in how we get our information. With growing distrust in our public institutions, press, and corporations, we can't help but find ourselves skeptical. Asking questions like, why is our government lying to us? Why is this certain information kept secret? And why does it seem like information is being covered up? These questions spark the interest in today's theme, Press Freedom, Assange, and WikiLeaks. Although we won't be directly answering them, we will be diving into the world of the press by taking a look at the most sensitive of information, the type of news that was meant to be hidden and never uncovered. Yet through circumstances and strong feelings for a need of justice, whistleblowers release this information, putting their lives at risks in hopes for social justice. Given that Julian Assange will be heard in his final appeal tomorrow at the High Court in the UK, we thought of bringing you this episode, which includes Julian Assange's story, an overview of the state of press freedom, and the effects of WikiLeaks on the world today. Through casual conversation, research, and data, and stories, we'll be diving into yet another episode of the Digital Storm podcast. On this show, we promise you that you will learn about how to be a better digital citizen while protecting your online well-being. I'm your host, Eunice, and by my side is my co-host, Peter, who is also the editor of our social media channels, and somehow finds joy in fueling himself with a new, fresh cup of coffee every single time instead of reusing the same one. But either ways, Peter, how you been? Uh, very well. You know, like, it's nice living in a house where you just take cups as you wish and then they magically get washed by themselves. So I've been loving it. You know? Absolutely. Way to take initiative, by the way, with all the dishes. Thank you. Thank you. Some of us have to, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, we, we, we spoke in a previous episode about uh, the news and the state of the news around the world overall and disinformation and misinformation. Um, but I thought of starting off this one about um, maybe a small like anecdote from my childhood. At least I grew up and I went to an American school in uh, Morocco. And uh, although Morocco is a constitutional monarchy and has its own parliament, so a form of democracy, um, in my American school, we were taught that the constitution of any government is mostly about we, the people. And it's really this power of the people and democracies is uh, in, in the way that we govern our, our institutions and all of this. It's sort of like our contract as well with the government is that we have a responsibility as citizens, but they have a responsibility to grant us our rights in a way. And so thinking about all of this, um, yeah, it was kind of this like confusing way of growing up between being shown these Western ideals of freedom and of liberty and of expression, while at the same time having this more of a Moroccan and Eastern outlook on all of these things. How was it like for you growing up? Uh, for me, like growing up, I would put it into like two brackets. So in terms of the education, I, I feel like especially as I moved to Prague and went to like an English speaking school, the education was presented to me as a wide like 
open space for ideas where you can just have a variety of topics discussed and then come up with your own conclusions, which I think was really, really nice. And like we would examine theory of knowledge itself and how we process knowledge as humans and so on, which benefited me in terms of how I formulate my sentences and also how I think. In terms of overall, I always had a bit of a problem because uh, when I was learning things in school, I was always like the kid that would ask, like, why are we learning what we're learning? You know, why? I would be like the why, you know? And yeah, you know, certain topics made sense to me, certain not so much, but I would always like kind of push on on like what's the relevant relevance and only when I grew relevance. up. Yeah, relevance. Thank you. Yeah. Only when I grew up a bit was I like, okay, like, even stuff like education themselves kind of like ultimately need to structure and choose what present what they present to us versus what they don't. Absolutely. So you would always be asking these questions of why, but do you consider your nature as someone who is naturally rebellious? Yeah, I would say a, a little bit. I, I ultimately like I'm skeptical of power in any format. So when I was younger, it was like the classic teacher-student dynamic or even with my family, like my parents, like who are they to tell me what to do and so on. So I would think that like power was always something that I think should have been questions and I still stand to that today because ultimately if you don't question it, as we'll find out throughout this episode, it is something that becomes like a factor we need to deal with and with with without questioning it results in, well, just people being neglected and the power being overused. Absolutely. And I think, uh, <laughs> here I go again saying absolutely, but uh, I actually had thought a bit about this anecdote from my days in elementary school. And uh, this for me perfectly describes kind of my rebellious nature. So we, used, we had this cafeteria where they would uh, serve us foods during lunch and we would show up and there would be like today's menu. So sometimes it'd be like rice and veggies with something or other times it's like a burger. And then we had this new company that came. And when this new company came, they sort of promised us that they would continue on serving us the same sort of menu that we had before. And one day, uh, on a Wednesday, we show up and it's supposed to be steak and fries day. And we're in line and I'm one of the first few people in the line. And I look in front of me and I see that there is no steak and fries and people are leaving the, the lunch line with, um, I think it was something like veggies with rice. And I'm like, I felt completely betrayed. So I go up to the line to see the food that's being served. And I, I take a look at it and I see that it's not steak and fries. So I'm like, what the fuck? I come back to the line and I start complaining to the people around me and my friends. And we're like, guys, this is not cool. They've betrayed our trusts. We have no more trust anymore in this, the institution of the cafeteria at my school. And uh, I felt completely betrayed. So then with my friends, we started a small chant between us. And it was, Asheb, Yurid, Stekul Frit, which just means the people want steak and fries, the people. And we just kept on repeating this and repeating it. As we started repeating it, we realized that the whole line joined in, but not only the whole line, but also the whole cafeteria joined in on the same chant. So this means that grades one through five, all of them were chanting the words, the people want steak and fries. At, for some reason during that moment, I thought that this was going to create massive change in the sense of everyone in the kitchen staff is going to be fired because there was a massive protest and all of this. But this is what a fifth grader thinks, you know. But then in reality, there was a lot of bureaucracy in the way where they couldn't just like start making steak and fries for everyone that day because, well, you got to prep that. Not only so, but also there is a menu that's planned for a whole month. So they've already bought everything. 
So in reality, it shows how social movements, and it taught me later on in the years, that social movements or protests and things like that, yes, they do create a small change in the sense where they influence actors um, that can make certain decisions, but they cannot elect, it cannot make a change so big that essentially everything is toppled and everything is changed at in uh, at an instant moment. Yeah, interesting. I, I feel like, uh, first of all, good on you, you know, like, look at you. That's right. I'm part of the resistance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the revolution yet to come. Yeah. But yeah, it, 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 you made me think about something quite interesting, which is that, yeah, it's crazy how like you can have these single actions in the moment, whether it's your canteen example or something else. And how you feel and stuff like that and how many people act upon it as as it's happening. But in terms of like real life implications usually aren't the same. So even like in other movements, whether it was like climate change protests, whatever it was, you know, like you could see the big noise, you know. But then in terms of the aftermath, so many dead ends with bureaucracy, so on, blah, blah, blah. That obviously things get passed, but ultimately how you feel in the moment versus what actually gets done, I do think are two different sides of the same thing, you know? Yeah, and it's even like, uh, have you been to like protests and things like that? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I, I went to a fair few. I went to a climate protest here in the Netherlands. I went to a, a march for Ukraine when Russia invaded Ukraine uh, and so on. And to be honest, like, it is, you get a sense of like some sort of like a powerful feeling once you're there. It just ultimately sometimes as I grew up, I it does hit me like a bit like, is anything really going to change after that? Like, it's cool that everyone came together here for a common cause. But in terms of being optimistic of what's going to change, I don't, I'm not that optimistic. Yeah, and it's weird because for me at least, so I grew up in Morocco once again. And in, there, um, in 2011, there was obviously the Arab Spring. And although it didn't hit Morocco in the biggest and strongest way as it did in countries like Egypt and in Tunisia and in other places, uh, it's still something that I felt in the sense of uh, the teenagers that were a little bit older than me seemed to be quite active in the movement and participating in all of that. And as they did, I sort of saw this as a form of resistance, as a form of growing up and it's as you grow up you become to you learn how to become more resistant towards the things that you don't kind of want and uh i also saw this again with the Hirak movement which erupted in morocco around 2015 and later on studied this um, but i also tried to assist like protests when i was here uh specifically like black lives matter ones or like the palestine protests as well uh, but also some COVID protests where i was just curious to go see what are people saying about COVID and what are people saying about uh, the vax and everything like that? Yeah, I for sure. But I feel like uh, with these types of things, one good aspect that comes out of it is the emergence of like whistleblowers. You know, I feel like that, okay, fine. Maybe there's no like, like it's not that big of a change in how you feel in a protest and so on. But at least like certain people get inspired and actually want to do something about it. So most people just go back by their their everyday lives, including us too and stuff. But there are like real hero, heroes that we'll get into that really like took it into their own hands to be like, maybe I won't change the world, but I will like leave my print on it. I think so. And, and also... I think whistleblowers are, um, of course, like fundamental to the way that democracy functions as a whole. And they sort of 
offer this check of power and of wrongdoing of governments and of political institutions and of uh, corruption. Um, they, offer, they offer this check of power and that check of power is the only thing that kind of keeps that democracy alive or that true freedom alive as we know it today. And in, in fact, there's a study by the Ethics Compliance uh, Initiative from 2021 that shows that organizations with strong whistleblow whistleblower programs experienced 50% fewer instances of misconduct and corruption than those without. And I think the most common mis misperception about whistleblowers is that um, whistleblowers are mostly for everything that's governmental and political and all of that. But I think they also exist quite often within the corporate world. Yeah, and I also think like whistleblowers Uh, whistleblowers in my eyes are to be honest kind of like modern day heroes like it obviously depends who the whistleblower is and what action and so on but i do think that like you know they really often put a lot on a line to stand up for something they really believe in which is really really hard to do today because there's one thing making a stand when you feel like you're not going to face any repercussions but a lot of the whistleblowers including julian and sands and so on sacrifice their whole life for something bigger than them which most of us, including us two, are not willing to do. And it's a really, really tough thing to do. And yet we're used to like the superheroes in movies wearing like tights and like having aprons or whatever. What do you call them? The capes. Capes and yeah. so on. But like in reality, like there's true superheroes or regular folk that really sacrificed everything for the core values, whether it's freedom, whether it's privacy, whether, whatever it is. And those to me are the real heroes. And I think a perfect example of this is uh, actually from August 2001, where Sharon Watkins, um, a former Enron vice president, so Enron is this big uh, sort of uh, gas uh, corporation in the US, discovered that there was these accounting irregularities and financial misconduct within the company. And so as a whistleblower, what she did is that she anonymously alerts uh, the CEO and says, uh, basically, here's what's happening with all the financial problems. Uh, and then in March 2001, this uh, journalist named Bethany McLean publishes an article in Fortune magazine titled, Is Enron Overpriced? Because essentially what Enron was doing was that they were saying that here's how much money we're making, when in reality they're making way less and counting certain numbers, but not counting others. And in McLean's article, uh, it attracted quite a bit of public attention and scrutiny, which eventually prompted further investigation into Enron and the whole financial sort of problems that they were affairs that they were having. And of course, that's where regulators came in, investors and the media came in to really hold them accountable. And all of this collaborative exposure and all of this efforts done by not only um, the former Enron vice president, but also uh, the journalists and the, and the investors and regulators uh, led that throughout 2001 and into 2002, Watkins' internal whistleblowing and McLean's external journalism work in tandem worked to uncover the Enron scandal, leading to an increased awareness, regulatory action, and the eventual downfall of the company as they went and de declared bankruptcy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like really, really important. And I can't even imagine what, how much stress they had to go through while dealing doing these types of research, leaking these types of documents. You know, like, it's it's a lot. And I think, ultimately, I I think, like, whistleblowers not only are the heroes that kind of keep our society accountable, but I also think that they're often forgotten, you know, like, I often they they're praised in the moment when they do something well, but their lives before and after tend to be quite shit, you know? They really sacrificed so much that most people are not willing to do, you know? 
Absolutely. And I can only imagine what has happened to um, to Sharon Watkins. I mean, as a, as a vice president coming out and saying, here's the internal, internal problems happening at the company I work in. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been for her after to get a job? Yeah, I mean, sure. sure, you may be known as the transparent person or the person that stands for the right thing, but also we don't always want the rat per se. Yeah, and also like, I mean, let's be honest here, big companies like do not reward people that are trans- transparent and fair. They simply look at it like, are you going to make us the most money possible? And that's that. They don't really give a fuck if, where your values lie. They actually prefer that your values are not like that because then they can easily force you into doing things that is more beneficial for the company. And speaking of rats as well, I think a person that's kind of known for being a rat by some people, but also known to be a hero and a common whistleblower is Edward Snowden. Oh, what a guy. Yeah. And uh, Edward Snowden, to those that don't know, is a former NSA contractor and he disclosed classified documents to journalists Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, revealing that the NSA's widespread surveillance programs targeting both American citizens and foreign leaders. And what we can see throughout the whole Edward Snowden story, at least for me, is that it's a classic case of Obviously, you could see Edward Snowden as a rat by, uh, in the sense of he released classified documents that he got access to through his job at the NSA. So he was kind of a traitor to his own country. But at the same time, how can you be a traitor to your own country when you're standing up for the right values? And the values being justice and equality and being, well, transparency in a way. Absolutely. I mean, even what he said on it was said best, which is like, if exposing a crime is treated as a crime, you know you're being run by criminals. And it's true. All he did is he exposed the wrongdoings and the invasion of privacy that the US government and the CIA and so on were up to. And all he did was face punishment, being labeled as an American enemy, while in reality, he was just pro-people. He didn't have an agenda. He just saw that this was a clear violation of like like a overreach of power by the governments and ultimately made the right call in my opinion now he's been punished he's he's been exiled to russia you know like he can't even go home each four years with a new president people ask if he's going to be pardoned and so on i feel like this is like a, a episode topic by itself and i think we're going to do one eventually on edward snowden but yeah the way they treated him you know, really showed where the values line, which is basically like, you f- fuck with us, we'll end you, no matter if you're right or wrong. Yeah, we may be done things wrong, but we're not going to be held accountable. It's all your fault. U.S. never apologized, I mean, like, we were wrong in these types of things. No, 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 like, responsibility was ever taken. Yeah, and it's even, uh, the actions of Snowden showed us that uh, there's, he, he left a lasting impact on the way that we perceive uh, digital privacy and digital rights, but also a lasting impact just on the overall role of transparency within governments. Like, if they are looking into us for national security, how far can that can they take that idea? How far can they take the Patriot Act? How far can they take the idea that we need to protect our citizens, therefore we need to access your personal information to determine whether or not you're a threat? Yeah, we even had this a bit with COVID, which is like when the government like references safety, they can excuse almost any type of behavior, you know? So while they can frame, like they can be like, oh, we're accessing everyone's private emails, 
but it's for your safety and then it's okay, you know? But the reality is they're just power hungry and control hungry, you know? I don't think that like certain things might be prevented and yeah, okay, safety is important and I'm the first to back it. But ultimately, to it's kind of like almost like a decoy word used by many governments that to say like, oh, we're keeping you safe. That's why you're losing more and more of your freedoms, you know? And do you think that this has something to do with, uh, like, for example, if the governments were more transparent overall about what they did, do you think this would solve the problem? Do you think, would there be challenges with being too transparent or something like that? Oh, yeah, this is a really, really tough one. Because, like, obviously, like, I preach transparency. I think overall it's a good thing. But the problem is that ultimately governments will always have information that they want to keep hidden mostly because they don't want other countries to find it out or also like the you know there's just certain things that i think maybe the world would even collapse if everything would be known you know but ultimately like going through more and more transparent route is always better than less and i feel like as a world where kind of moving towards sharing less and less and being less and less transparent where now every other guy in the bar is going to tell you like oh men in black suits run the world like people like blackrock and so like that run blackrock and so on are the real owners of the world and that kind of like speculation results through the lack of transparency so it creates like this kind of unbalance of knowledge and i think we should aim towards more transparency but ultimately have in mind that governments will always have secrets they have to of course and it's also this double-edged sort of transparency itself like on one hand you have Well, there's privacy concerns, like some people's privacy could be invaded upon if it is the choice to be fully transparent. Um, and citizens' data and personal data could be released in these massive data dumps and all of that. So that could be a problem. And that could also put individuals' lives at risk, especially those in the context that are a bit more politically sensitive. But then, of course, there's concerns about national security. Oftentimes, we say that the government cannot be so transparent because they need to protect us in regards to foreign nations and in regards to all of this. But I also feel like that's kind of a bullshit reason that's been uh, argument that's been brought up about transparency in the sense of at what cost are we going to protect national security when we see that the exact things that we did to protect national security are also the things that they've created massive harm like we saw after 2001 and the September 11 attacks where uh, the attacks happen, national security is threatened and then boom it's time to start invading the entire Middle East. Yeah and it was exactly that right which was like they were exam- pre- pre- presented like oh, it's your safety that we're protecting. That's why we're invading all these countries. That's why we're passing things like the Patriot Act and like invading your privacy. It's all because to keep you safe, we're actually your older brother kind of looking over you, you know? And I think that kind of behavior reasoning is bullshit, even though safety is important. But then even like people like us that let's say now we're a bit critical, you know, they would like flip back on us and be like, oh, you just don't care about safety because that's the narrative they framed. You know, once you really just go like, we just care for people, it's very hard to criticize because they can always draw back to the argument. We just want to keep Americans in this case safe. Yeah, and I think that this makes me think that, uh, that our perspective that we're sharing right now is probably most mostly aligned with the majority of the youth's perspective on whistleblowers and on transparency and on all of this. Do you feel that uh, you see whistleblowing as a duty? Um, sort of, if you are in a position where you do have access to information that could be uh, valuable to the public, would you be sharing that sort of information? Would you not? I mean, look, 
I think it's easier said than done, you know, like I think ultimately I, if you think something is within the interest of the public, especially if it's harming or invading their privacy or so on, I do kind of think you should let people know. But ultimately, it's easier to to say by like me than someone that is in it, full career, let's say the family's paying for their house, they had three children, you know, like those are a whole different story. And I feel like ultimately we should aim towards it but it's easier said than done and we're in no position to like lecture people that they should do it even though we should like incentivize it you know? of course but it's also this is to say that i found this report from 2001 uh from the deloitte global millennial and gen z survey which found that 80 percent of respondents believe that individuals have a responsibility to report unethical behavior as opposed to 74% of the previous generation. So this shows us that there is a increase from 74% to 82% between the two generations of the one before us and today and our generation, so Gen Z, um, and just in regards to reporting unethical behavior. So that could be things like corruption, like it could be things like uh, mistreatment and things like that. Yeah, I think like you see it like on campuses you have now, especially in America, you have like safe spaces. You have, I think we 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 genuinely created an environment where we kind of champion these types of things, at least like in certain places, which is nice, you know. But ultimately, I think it's like, you know, like we we did the right steps when it comes to personal things, or if you see something in your local cafe, or like let's say so so on. Where it gets problematic is what the threats about, let's say, national security or like, you know, if you work for like a big corporation and have a big job and you see that like they did something terrible in like certain other regions or polluted the water, you know, that's where those are like the whistleblowers where like not only are they the real heroes to mention these types of things, but are also put in an incredibly hard situation. Not like if you're working in a cafe and something inappropriate happens or so on, you know, even though those are also whistleblowers. Yeah, and despite their, their, the contributions of these whistleblowers to, let's say, things like public accountability, they still often face personal and professional repercussions. Like, according to this Whistleblowing International Network in 2020, over 70% of whistleblowers suffer from retaliation, including job loss, legal action, and social ostracism. So this means that eventually, once you do release these documents, or once you do release this information that is restricted to the public, you are very likely to be facing trouble in the rest of your life. Yeah, but uh, I mean, not only that, you even see it like with things like, let's say, journalism, you know, like, what would, do you think, like, press is more free today than it was a few years ago? Like, obviously, depending on the country, or like, if you would be a journalist today, would you feel safe? See, I don't know, because uh, I feel like as I'm living in the Netherlands t today, I would feel pretty safe being a journalist in the Netherlands here. But at the same time, I wouldn't be going into the most investigative sort of pieces and things like that, even though that is something that does attract me as in getting to revealing the truth and all of this. Um, but also thinking back to like my context being a Moroccan, I don't necessarily have the best precedent per se to feel completely free as a journalist. In the sense of, uh, yeah, I think of cases like Omar Raji and Suleiman Raisumi, where Raisuni, sorry, and the cases of Omar Raji and Suleiman Raisuni was that kind of similar to the ones of Julian Assange, not in the sense where they created a whole WikiLeaks, but they were part of this uh, this uh, this uh, organization called Memphis Kinch, and what they would do is that they would publish these investigative reports about uh, uh, sort of the financial expenses behind this project and uh, what actually happened, these corruption cases behind ministers and all of these things. 
and although I'm sure uh, people listening could go into these details a bit further in on their own time, just seeing how the cases of Omar Raji and Suleiman Rasuni were handled, eventually after releasing certain information, Suleiman Rasuni was was accused of uh, rape and of uh, sexual misconduct uh, against this other man and uh, uh, and of abuse and of things like that, and that as a whole made me feel that it was sort of a bit of a defamation case where they were defaming Suleiman Raisuni's authority and legitimacy by saying he's a bad person and he's up to bad things, so therefore he should not be trusted. And at the same time, with Omar Raji, exact same thing, where he was harassed by journalists being pursued uh, in his car as he was driving. Uh, journalists were chasing after him with a camera, recording live his every single move and posting it on YouTube. Uh, he was at a bar and after he left the bar, uh, the journalists were there and he went into a brawl with them because they were they kept on filming him and then they caught him for public intoxication. So it's just like trying to find the things that yeah. would put him into trouble. And although I see this as something that could be real within my Moroccan context, I also see this brighter side of the Moroccan context as a whole, which is that now with independent journalism, there's a lot more possibilities. So I do see a lot more of a pluralistic media but I still see a media that is quite dependent on advertisers and on basically the government's accord in them being able to be a source of authority and legitimacy. Yeah, damn, you, you gave me a lot to entangle there. but Yeah, um, sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> but I completely agree with everything you had to say. I think um, it's interesting to me how, let's say when something does get exposed by either a journalist or a whistleblower and so on, they tend to like go to attack the character, you know, which is crazy because like, let's say even in the examples you use, the rape allegations were, were correct, which we don't know if they were. Uh, the fact is that it doesn't matter in terms of like what he exposed is still valid. You know, he might be a bad person and I'm not saying he is, but like, even if he would be, you know, like it doesn't matter the the exp just because you're diminishing his character it doesn't mean that the things he, the corruptions of power and so on he exposed are not valid and this is like a common trend where people that like make something like expose something revolutionary and so on their character gets attacked to kind of try distracting from the overall message that they did even if let's say the whistleblower is a terrible person it doesn't discourage from the fact that they've exposed a corruption of power and both can be true at the same time sometimes they're not sometimes they are yeah and that's what adds into my degree of skepticism about whether or not the media is actually free or not so you see all of these sort of investigative reports being released and in my head i always wonder at which point is this information going to be, well, subject to questions of authority or legitimacy because it actually revealed deep truths? Hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah, especially like, I, I guess you have to even play a game to participate in these types of things, you know? So let's say, boom, us to want to become journalists today. We, we will have very little freedom, especially if we're working for some sort of press agency on what to write about. And even if they give us this freedom, there will be topics that they don't want us to discuss. Like in the previous podcast, how we talked about if we would work for the Washington Post, we probably can't be that critical of Jeff Bezos and so on, you know. And the fact that they limit you, you're only as free as your platform gives it. And I completely agree the rise of independent journalism and like through the rise of social media and so on and other alternative media platforms is going to be very beneficial of like not having those constraints. You know, even us, we run our podcast, so we have the freedom to talk about things like Julian Assange. But like if we would be figures representing like the 
USCIA, we probably wouldn't be able to like praise Julian Assange on a public platform the way we are, you know? Yeah, and the, the Committee to Protect Journalists actually in 2022 reported that the attacks on journalists have risen by 15% in the last year, with many facing harassment, legal charges, and violence. And I'm curious to know about what you guys think. Do you see this as something being true within your own countries? And perhaps in the comments below or even on social media discussions, let us know what it's like in your country and how is this the case? Uh, is press freedom actually something that's protected? And is the safety of journalists something that's important in your nation? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like with these types of things, um, press freedom is obviously, I think, on the bit of a down just because like you have so much access to everyone, you know, like right now, if you want to identify a person, track them, so on, it has never been easier. So even though like, you know, there's certain journalistic rights, especially let's say in the EU, EU and America and so on, that have been campaigned for, the truth pays a different reality i think like the fact that you know everything is so digitalized really allows people to have too much access to one person and that one person can be too easily identified now a lot of journalists that do journalism have to go through crazy practices use vpns different uh, browsers um like keep their name don't sign, check in with their real you know so many aspects because once they their name or so on is accessed they can be traced down like it's nothing yeah, and I think it was episode two, right? Where we dive into uh, yeah, how we the news, consume how the we news. consume the news. And on episode two, we discussed all of the great ways in which we can be preventing and, and protecting sort of press freedom as a whole. Um, talking about the Germany's, Germany's way of handling uh, jur journalistic pluralism. And so we definitely recommend checking that out in order to get a bit more information about how we can actually provide safety and training to journalists. Um, but as a quick example of this actually is in Mexico, journalists face the significant threats and uh, organizations like Article 19 provide safety training and legal support to journalists, empowering them to report on sensitive issues such as corruption and organized crimes while minimizing the risks to their safety. So what's great to see is that there are many organizations around the world and different national ones and local ones, but also international ones that help provide the safety training, uh, legal advice, but also um, organizations like Amnesty International actually help advocate for the rights of these journalists uh, within the global scene. Yeah, and I feel like uh, to be a bit critical of the whole rise of independent media and stuff, with that, like, yeah, a lot of people have more freedom to cover cover topics that we like to talk about and so on, and they find interesting and so on. But the problem is that I feel like that core journalistic values, the ones you learn if you go to journalism school or so on, is kind of lacking in terms of like how important it is to like reference your sources, to be transparent, to be like an ethical interviewer. All these aspects are also being lost in the process. So while one is a benefit, it's also like kind of problematic that all these core values the journalists kind of must have as the gatekeepers towards what's happening in the world, I think are getting lost in the kind of chaos and noise of like everyone having a platform nowadays. And hence why we have the Digital Storm podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. But uh, on the last episode about porn, we actually introduced a new segment all about exposing the myths about our theme and the reality behind them. For now, we are calling this segment uh, Myth versus Reality. Creative, right? But uh, as we are working on a jingle and a nice intro for it, we want to hear about what you think this section should be called and what jingle should and what the jingle sh should sound like. And even if you'd like to help us make a tune for it, 
please make sure to reach out to us on our socials, available on Instagram, Twitter, and of course by email as well at you at fikra.studio. So let's get started with myths versus reality, um, discussing whistleblowers and press freedom. Should we start with the first myth? Give it to me. Oh, yeah. Okay. First myth. Uh, the main myth that we have about press freedom is solely about the right to publish anything without consequence. Press freedom is a cornerstone of democratic societies, emphasizing the right to report uh, truthfully and hold power to account. It's not an unchecked license to publish, but a balanced right that comes with responsibilities, including accuracy, accountability, and respecting privacy laws. So the World Press Freedom Index actually indicates that the countries with the highest press freedom scores also have robust legal frameworks ensuring responsible reporting and accountability for misinformation. So they both go hand in hand. We have press freedom that is not absolute. It's only based on the fact that you are able to be accurate, accountable, and you respect privacy laws. Yeah, and I feel like with, I think like, especially in terms of press freedom, um, it's kind of like again with tying to what i was saying is like only by really like kind of using the the template to really learn about journalism do you understand how important it is you know we kind of studied it in school but journalists have it to a greater extent and once you see it you can't unsee it you, you carry this token of responsibility if you wish to give your information to the public it needs to meet a certain standard and be kind of ethical and i think with these types of things like I, I'm still a bit worried that we're losing our values. And you can see it today, especially in terms of like media having such clear agendas and so on. I think that core traditional journalistic principles and values have been thrown out the window in this attention-seeking economy. Yeah, and that leads us to actually our second myth, which is the common misconception that people see that it's only in democratic countries where you actually have press freedom and all of this. But And in these democratic countries, journalists face no risks or obstacles. Well, even in democracies, journalists can face significant risks, including, of course, legal challenges, physical threats, and surveillance issues. The level of press freedom varies widely across these different countries, with many democracies experiencing a decline in journalist protections and an increase in government hostility towards the press. So what we see here is that, in fact, countries like the U.S. who pride themselves for being protectives of uh, individual liberties and freedom and all of this are actually countries with a little more threats to journalists. Yeah, and even like in terms of like, uh, which we'll get into later, like censorship and so on, but... Once you go down the route of like, let's say, going what's okay to say and what's not, more and more things are going to be in a way censored and not okay talked about, not less, you know, the pile will keep on getting bigger. And ultimately, like the more countries excuse it and be like, okay, well, this is a matter of national security, we need to take them down. There's no stopping them, you know, and you can see, like you said, there's everywhere in most countries it's on the decline now. And it doesn't surprise me because like I can, I've seen the patterns throughout the world of how many things have been taken down and how many opinions have been shifted over certain topics. And ultimately, like, you know, I will always be against government overreach and more information is sometimes better than like someone choosing what is OK and what is not OK. And about the censorship part, that actually leads us to our third myth, which is something that I 
strongly believe is something that's been part of the media agenda so far, which is talking about press freedom as a question of censorship or not censorship, um, and censorship as being the main threat to press freedom, when in reality, even though it's a significant concern as part of press freedom, modern threats to press freedom include things like economic pressures, disinformation campaigns, propaganda, and digital surveillance. And these factors can really start to undermine the quality and journalistic independence and the quality of news reporting overall. And actually, there was a study on digital threats to press freedom, which highlighted how economic constraints and online harassment campaigns are increasingly used to influence editorial content and intimidate journalists. So that could be done through abuse on social media accounts, like the same way that could be done uh, through Twitter bots saying, oh, fuck this guy for releasing this news. Yeah. And it's for me, it's especially crazy nowadays how like people are you know especially young people like us are so passionate on such a variety of topics that uh ultimately they're ruthless you know like they like they they see a piece that someone goes says something that they disagree with like that targets sensitive topics like race or sexuality or so on and they write stuff like go kill yourself you go you know like no shame well i mean I'd actually teasing the next episode. Sometimes it's important to like, you know, have a big variety of opinions out there and kind of reading things that you disagree with and so on. And by having that pressure on companies and individuals and exposing them and so on, kind of like yeah, censors and we do it to ourselves in a way, like you said. Yeah, and um, join us on the next episode actually with uh, Ben Caponen who we will be talking with about uh, everything in relation to conversations, why they're important and why we should be trying to protect the conversations and uh, online spaces where we can have them. But moving on to myth number four, um, many people believe that whistleblowers like Julian Assange or Chelsea Manning are traitors who compromise national security, particularly talking about the US. Well, first things first, Julian Assange is not American, so how can he be a traitor? Second things is that Chelsea Manning is not necessarily a traitor because Whistleblowers often act out of a sense of self-duty to the public, uh, to the public interest, aiming to expose wrongdoing, corruption, or illegal activities within governments or corporations. While national security is a serious, serious concern, many whistleblowers have taken steps to avoid unnecessary harm while shedding light on critical issues. So we're not talking about pure sort of like compromising national security. What we're talking about here is standing to something that is a little bit bigger than that, which is the public interest of the nation itself. And an, an analysis of whistleblower impacts demonstrates that in many cases, the disclosures have led to significant reforms, legal changes, changes and greater transparency without causing predicted harm to national security. And that's the thing that's kind of contradicting about the whole claim that Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning and all of these people are compromising national security. Yeah, I think national security is often used as a justification, just like we talked about earlier with safety, but ultimately like... In my eyes, these people should be viewed as more of heroes that actually impacted the country positively and holding their nation, or in the case of uh, Julian Assange, a nation accountable. He's not even American, but he was like, America's clearly overusing their power. And we'll get into the details later, but like ultimately he exposed criminal activity. And yet he's being exposed as a, like he didn't just leak some sort of privacy things that would benefit one country and harm the other he purely just presented information that he finds should is of interest to the public yeah and uh, what do you think motivates these whistleblowers um 
I think many people think that these whistleblowers are primarily motivated by fame and financial gain when in reality, the decision to blow is often done by something like ethical concerns and a commitment to justice. And it's not necessarily the fame or financial gain because they eventually end up in legal action with their career being jeopardized and having a bunch of personal threats. So what's it worth going through that? And so that's why I don't see that the myth of... Uh, these whistleblowers being primarily motivated by fame or financial gain as being something that's necessarily true. Yeah, especially if you consider that, like like you said, most of them, their life pre and post whistleblowing is hell, you know? So if you take the, the guy of today's episode, Julian Assange, you know, his life, no one wants that. He spent so long, which we'll get into in an embassy. He's in prison now waiting his sentence, which is coming actually tomorrow. Or same with like Edward Snowden lost his American citizenship and is exiled to Russia. You know, these types of things are, you know, they, they haven't seen their families, their children. They lost any track of normal life, you know. So like you need to like, I don't think fame and money is the motivator because ultimately freedom beats both of them, you know. Yeah, and as a quick reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode for now, please make sure to download it, like it, and subscribe. Share our show with someone you think needs to hear this discussion. We work very hard with a team of dedicated volunteers to bring you the best content that we can. Your support is greatly appreciated and important to us as it helps us raise more awareness about these important problems. But now, let's move on to the next section is where we dive into the story of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. So, who is Julian Assange? Oh, what a guy, you know? He's been through a lot. <laughs> like, I think, to me, he's a hero. I think it's best to go into the details of his life as we speak. So, I, I mean, early life, you know, like, he grew up in Australia. You know, he, I know from what we talked about, he had, like, a troubled uh, upbringing with his mom. He had to move a lot, right? Yeah, it was actually quite quite mind-blowing as I was reading up about his story. He actually moved a total of 37 times when he was younger, so before he went to university. And as he lived in Australia, he actually, his mother had a partner um, who was part, who was linked to the Anne Hamilton Burn cult, which was a cult where they basically raised children and gave them a bunch of LSD to live a more um, open life, I think. Nice. Is that right, Jules? Uh, yeah, basically it was also called the family and it's a cult that was it, just like any other cult, you know, like taking drugs, kind of like an ego-driven litter, and that's it. Oh, I didn't know Jules was part of a cult then. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and so I think this this whole period of his life maybe probably taught him a bunch of lessons about how to hide from people because... What I learned about um, this as well is that the, the the boyfriend or the new husband of his mother actually started following them around. And so members of this cult also started following them around and hence they also needed to move so much. Um, that wasn't the only reason they moved so much. It was also because his mom was part of a theater group. And so they would need to move for that. Um, but I think that taught him quite a bit about how to be skeptical of the people in front of you, especially father figure like your mother's boyfriend seems like someone with a sense of authority. And so seeing him being a bit uh, cuckoo, you're like, okay, maybe I should not be trusting everyone, you know? Yeah, I, I saw an interview with him and he said that one of the first memories of uh, what made him question power was actually like when his mom was stopped by a police officer and 
uh, I think her, his mom, correct me if I'm wrong, was a bit into politics as well and so on. And apparently the officers stated that he was like, it's not safe here for people like you and your son to be around, to 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 be in this type of activity and this in politics and so on. And that was the first time that he got slapped in the face being like, oh, not everyone with a lot of power has my best interest in mind and power actually tends to corrupt. Of course. And I think even, uh, even in terms of his coding, he was put into contact with coding and programming and all of this at quite a young age. And he taught himself, I believe. And his fascination with computers ba- began with mag- uh, Magnetic Island. And by 16, he actually acquired his first modem and began marking his entry into the hacker community. And uh, he had this alias, which I found to be interesting, which was uh, Mendax. In his late teens, Assange adopted this hacker alias called Mendax and formed the International Subversives Groups with two others, delving into the digital innards of organizations like the US, uh, US Department of Defense, NASA, and various corporations. So he was hacking into all of these different corporations. Yeah. And then... I think he faced quite some legal trouble after that. Yeah, but he was quite a, to be honest, he was quite a big boy hacker, you know? Like, I think his whole, like, WikiLeaks thing kind of, like, distorted him from, but he was not, he he had the same type of values, but ultimately his hacking was quite impressive and also, again, leaking quite a lot of interested information and getting access to a lot of, like, documents from, like, NASA and other forms that are quite respected, like the U.S. Department of Defense. So, which is like hard to access. You need to be like a list of the a list of hackers to be able. Like he's a very bright and talented hacker in a way. You know. I mean, I think we need to like go back also to the context of like hacking back then. Yeah. Um, it was much different than like nowadays. So many hackers, and that's what he's saying is like in his autobiography, is that you do it for the pleasure. Also. It wasn't about like whistleblowing that much back then. It was also for the pleasure of being where other people cannot be through the cyberspace. And also there is this thing where like, yeah, he formed a group with people he met on like forums. Like it's not like uh, us creating the FICA. Yeah. It's like you know someone, but you don't know them because it's kind of new because internet is kind of new and everything is kind of new and you can access so much for the first time kind of. Yeah. So, so it's sort of this challenge that he set himself of accessing a space that cannot be accessed normally. And then he formed this unit with this group of people that he just didn't know and was getting to meet as he was setting himself this challenge. That's kind of a part of it, yeah. That's exactly, like, I don't know if he formed it, maybe he got contacted by the other guy. I don't know exactly the, the details, but yeah, he, it was like mostly about the fact of hacking rather than the fact of, under like discovering new like information and just sharing them with the public yeah i think also like for knowing how like these hackers work from and so on like it's a big flex being like i hacked the u.s department of defense or nasa or so on it's like gives you a level of prestige in terms of the hacking community and i guess everything becomes a community so and especially in those time when everything was such a mystery and you didn't really know where the digital age was going you know I think like it's very very impressive, and not only that, I do believe that like ultimately his intent was just 
he's kind of a guy that wants to prove a point. Look, I can do that, you know. And what's crazy is that all of this that we've spoken about so far with Julian Assange is not even reaching the time when he's created the WikiLeaks yet. And in fact, actually, with all of these problems that he's done with the Department of Defense, NASA, and various other corporations, he was actually uh, raided by the Australian police, who discovered his hacking activities in 1991. And then in 1996, he faced 31 accounts related to hacking, but he only received a suspended sentence after reaching a deal with the authorities. And so it's quite, for me, a bit shocking how essentially we know about Julian Assange through WikiLeaks. But then all of this previous work is kind of overshadowed by the big importance of WikiLeaks. Yeah, yeah, but that's classic, you know, like in football, you can have like a decent career, but score one goal that wins you the World Cup and everyone forgets about everything else, you know, that you're more, more than just that. Yeah, and I think Assange's unique upbringing and early encounters with the digital and the real world implications of secrecy and transparency kind of naturally culminated in the creation of WikiLeaks. And it was uh, this platform that was dedicated to exposing uh, the hidden information and holding the powerful to account. And WikiLeaks under Assange's leadership transformed whistleblowing by providing this big global platform for safe disclosure of classified and sensitive information. So on this, we saw many different files that we will be getting into a little bit later, but also WikiLeaks... Uh, kind of created this whole uh, global discussion around the balance between national security and the public's right to know, which highlights the importance of the conversation we were having um, beforehand. And this created much controversy where people have these polarized opinions. Some people see Assange as this uh, champion of free speech, while others see him as a person that's uh, essentially endangering lives and national security. And this sort of is exactly why we thought I thought of probably getting into defining what WikiLeaks is as a tool. Yeah, for sure. I feel like um, it's best. Of, I feel like the term WikiLeaks gets thrown around so much because it was so influential in so many documents. It's been referenced so many times. But I think it's best that maybe we give the listeners like a brief summary of what WikiLeaks really is. Yeah, so it's a multinational media organization and associated library, and it was founded founded by its publisher Julian Assange in 2006. So essentially, only acts as a giant library. It uh, gives asylum to these documents. They analyze them and they promote them to obtain more as well. So this is the only thing that they do. It they're not diving deep into the world of Iraq. They're not, uh, you know breaking through any things that are not supposed to be there. All they're doing is that they're opening the door for other whistleblowers to come and publish that information. So they are quite similar to the New York Times, like they're similar to the Associated Press, the same way they're similar to Reuters or Russia Today. Oh, I mean, uh, like, I, I wouldn't say they're that similar. Like, it is similar in the sense that, like, all they ask is for information to be like sent and then they're the judges if they think it's within the public's interest for information to be leaked they do do so you know what new york times and reuters and so on do is add that extra touch which is that they get this information but then they also put their spin and they choose the wording and they put a narrative on it some more some less you know but wikileaks was basically just there for any from any people that wanted a safe space that didn't feel like they could leak information that they think is within the public interest 
they they created a safe space for that and ultimately when people feel safe and they can trust something like wikileaks to like send the information and examples of corruption or military overreach or whatever or power overreach then it becomes a problem because people start leaking more and more because it's a trusted source and they know that they will like not face consequences and yeah i think it created a really nice and safe space and it's in the way like we talked about earlier one of the core journalistic principles of just being transparent to what's already existing information without necessarily putting a twist or a propaganda spin on it yeah but i also meant as in they're close to those media organizations because they are a media organization yeah. and it's important to not consider them as a whistleblowing organization or anything like that because essentially this is the reason why wikileaks bring a, brings up the conversation of press freedom because if they block wikileaks and uh, they set the precedent of julian assange and being arrested and being extradited and convicted for a crime faced in the us it sets up this whole precedent for future journalists in case you ever plan on uncovering something that's that's not supposed to be uncovered per se, then uh, you're most likely going to end up in prison, shot or killed. Yeah, sorry. I, you're completely right. And also like, I mean, if you put it like this, literally what they do is exactly like you said, what these media corporations do, which is like they get access to raw resources that they find of interest and then they just publish it minus the story and so on. But like, it's crazy that let's say it's someone like Julian Assange through WikiLeaks is going, is in prison as we speak. Well, the same companies like New York Times and stuff that use the resources to publish stories, whether it was the Iraq or Afghanistan military files or whatever it was, the fact that they, they're not to hold accountable at all, even though they did the same thing as Julian Assange, minus creating a space for these resources to be submitted in the first place, really shows where journalism is at this point, you know, and how ultimately if you kind of like expose or threaten people in power they will do their best to bring you down in one way or another no matter if your values align with the journalistic values or not ultimately the only value they care about is power and control and capital yeah of course but maybe jules i i, I saw that you prepared something about how the servers uh and how sort of wikileaks function as a whole and uh, yeah could you maybe explain a little bit of that for us uh, yeah, so basically, I mean, maybe some of the listeners might be wondering why the website is still here. Um, it's because basically it, the website is hosted in 507 different locations and or different mirror websites. Uh, and so then WikiLeaks kind of like encrypts its own data. First of all, to like keep themselves safe but also to keep their sources like safe. So let's say you're a whistleblower, you're like talking to WikiLeaks, there's a huge emphasis in keeping these people safer than WikiLeaks itself. So the servers kind of feed in and act as if there is thousands and thousands of WikiLeaks reports of, uh, sorry, of uh, fake submissions that are going through uh, the network itself. And this kind of hides the real documents that are being submitted by the actual whistleblowers. Yeah, that's like another strategy they're using as well. Uh, it's just, yeah, you just send a lot of documents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that way it's like finding... Finding the needle within the haystack. Yeah. yeah it's Absolutely. It's hard to track. I understand. Yeah. So maybe we should go over quickly just like a brief timeline of 
what are the major events that happened on WikiLeaks itself. Like I think it started off in 2007 with uh, WikiLeaks posting a U.S. Army Manual of Standard Operating Procedures for soldiers overseeing Al-Qaeda suspects that were helped, held captive in Camp Delta in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And I think this already shows sort of the yeah. far overreach of the military-industrial yeah. complex. Yeah, and also like sets the precedent that they weren't fucking around. When WikiLeaks started leaking, no one was safe, you know? Yeah, but they also engaged in 2008, two months before the U.S. presidential election, uh, where they leaked emails from the Yahoo account of Republican Vice President Sarah Palin. Um, and that also obviously had certain effects on the elections as well. Yeah. and But then, like, w the 2010 was a big year for them, right? In 2010, they went absolutely ham. That's where most of the known cases came out of, right? Yeah, and 2010, actually in April, uh, they posted a classified U.S. military video of a U.S. Apache helicopter gunship firing at what the military says were believed to be armed fighters in New Baghdad, Iraq. Uh, among, uh, among the 18 killed were two Reuters journalists. So it's literally like 18 minutes of video showing U.S. Apache helicopters being like, Come on, just let me shoot. Yeah. Come yeah. on, just let me shoot. Why are we waiting? Yeah, I just want to pull the trigger. Yeah, they were like treating it like a video game. But yeah, I remember that video really not only shook the world, but like shook everyone, to be honest. They watched it. But it was kind of crazy how not only did they like kind of frame it like as a video game, but even like the Reuters journalists that were killed, the Reuters never found out what happened to them and they wanted to like get access to this information and they were just labeled as casualties but in reality like it was American like the those um the pilots confused their camera for a gun like for a weapon to be honest like I, I heard that as an explanation yeah but looking at the video footage I did not see in any way as to how you can confuse that for a gun yeah but even <laughs> even that and one gun to shoot 18 people including then a van came to try picking up those that were wounded and like they shot the van as well and they ended up killing i think two kids if i believe so mm. which result which their response on the video was like you shouldn't bring kids to an armed conflict so that was a pilot's main reaction to like gunning down 18 people was like oh shouldn't have brought kids you know not taking any responsibility kind of treating it like a video game really went like damn is this what like the spreading of american freedom in iraq as it was framed is really like what it came to be you know so then in July 2010, WikiLeaks posts what it calls the Afghan war logs, more than 75,000 classified documents that record previously undisclosed civilian casualties inflicted by the U.S. and coalition forces. And this details the pursuit of Osama bin Laden and accounts of stepped-up fighting by the Taliban. So we can see that uh, with Chelsea Manning and with all of her work, uh, we can see that essentially we were able to reveal quite a bit about the military industrial complex and why we were engaging in war or not we, but why the US was engaging in war. Yeah, especially I feel like it really breached light on the conflict and kind of opened the door for Americans and other people to question the whole military complex, but also like what is America actually doing in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever, Syria or wherever else. And it really like, the I mean, just to put this into perspective, I, I believe the Afghan le leaks were one of the biggest leaks in American history in terms of like uh, m biggest leak of national security slash those, uh, comp, you know? So 
like it was big you know you really got so much insight on to the military and how they justify certain actions and how they brush off responsibility and so on that really painted the the road for like americans and people elsewhere being more critical today and it's crazy how in that exact same year uh wikileaks founder julian assange faced actually an arrest warrant uh over allegations of rape and molestation during a visit to sweden where police questioned him in stockholm where he denies the allegations completely and then uh, soon after that he actually posted nearly 400,000 classified military documents called the Iraq war logs and they detail the involvement of Iraqi security forces in the torture of prisoners of war document uh, they document higher civilian death tolls and describe Iran's support for Iraqi insurgents yeah i mean that that was a massive one especially because like the civilian casualties you know the way the, the American government tried brushing off of how many innocent people were actually dying. Well, and they said that it's hard to track and that those numbers are inflated. But the fact that communications shown that they were quite well aware that so many hundreds of thousands of innocent people died in Iraq was kind of scary because they were actively lying on national t- TV slash their public messaging. Exactly. And then later on that year in December, Assange was actually arrested in London to face extradition for the Swedish allegations. And then he is released and put under house arrest after posting bail. Um, later on, uh, WikiLeaks posts, uh, later on in 2011, actually, WikiLeaks posts seven cables from the US embassy in Cairo amid violent clashes between Egyptian security forces and pro democracy demonstrators. Uh, the documents discuss Egypt's human rights and civil liberties uh, violations. So we can see how WikiLeaks started to spread a little more internationally, looking at more international involvement of the US. Um, and looking more at other countries as well, where they also posted the Guantanamo files in that same year. And um, and then, yeah, and uh, spoke more about the men that are held captive in the Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, um, I do. if I remember correctly, they leaked that they were uh, tortured and that they had unwarranted and fair conditions. But ultimately, like WikiLeaks, I feel like was often painted by America, especially as someone with like some com- corporation slash organization with an agenda. But in reality, they did, they just like created a platform for truth to be a, open and like to hold different types of governments and institutions accountable. And they didn't pick on America or with any type of purpose. In reality, America just had a lot of private files exposed and showcased that they did a lot of things wrong. But they were equally, if not more, confronting slash critical of other like big time countries like russia ecuador morocco so many you know of course and then from 2012 pretty much up until um 2016 and 2017 um we saw wikileaks posting more and more emails more and more um sort of uh, leaked documents about the saudi foreign ministry about the nsa uh, german chancellor angela merkel french president francois hollande uh, ban ki-moon and all of these different people like silvio berlusconi and benjamin netanyahu so essentially the biggest names of modern politics were mentioned um, within the WikiLeaks and it's a f- website that you can fully access 
on your own using the internet where you can find all of these different files. But of course, they were also restricted by quite a bit of financial restrictions in the sense of they could no longer use PayPal to receive payments and donations. They could now no longer use MasterCard. Even their Amazon web server was like, well, we will no longer host you. So as you imagine, starting, I believe, 2012, they were quite aggressive with their whole donation campaign of getting money in order to be able to survive. Yeah, but I, I mean, it, it, WikiLeaks was one of those clear examples of like, when someone, when you go against something as big as the American government, everything is going to team up against you to bring you down, you know? And not only would different corporations work together, so it's difficult for you to get money and access to basic resources, but everyone was on the same page, which is we need to take Julian Assange and WikiLeaks down as quickly as possible. Yeah. And it's crazy how everyone was on that same page up until uh, he was actually able to seek exile in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Yeah. And then once he seeks exile in the, in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, uh, he releases these papers about that to bring up the Ecuadorian president. And of course, he upsets the only person on his side, which is then like, hey, sorry, Julian, but you got to leave the Ecuadorian embassy and we got to say peace out to you and this was actually during the same time where Manning was jailed after refusing to testify to a grand jury about what she actually leaked to Wikileaks yeah and just to be clear I, I believe that Julian Assange spent in the Ecuadorian embassy seven years until 2019 right meaning that like um, even while a lot of these documents were being leaked and so on you know um, he was in the embassy you know like that's the only safe space he could find you know, in complete and, isolation yeah, as well. And in the like embassy, under yeah. unhumane conditions, he literally lived in a room that was made into an office slash that was made into his room. You know, but he was so devoted to like just creating a platform for truth that ultimately, like, he sacrificed years and years of freedom and his life. He faced like there were cameras set in his room. They restricted the amount of guests he could have. It was just basically like being in a zoo, you know, being in a cage in uh, his own little prison, you know, all for the core values that he believed in, which is that a platform should exist where people have the safety to leak information that they feel like is within the interest of the public. Yeah, and I think what what we talk about when we talk about Julian Assange and press freedom and all of this is the importance of the fourth estate, where traditionally we know our societies and, and, and our systems of governance are organized based on legislative, executive, and judicial. But if you add this fourth estate, it adds this watching role of the press, which is kind of crucial to the functioning of democracy as a whole, where without the fourth estate, we no longer have anyone to hold any three, any of these three powers accountable, whether it be judicial, legislative or executive. Yeah, I think like, I mean, bang on, you know, like he really like, it's important to have something like this. If it's not him, it needs to be someone else and some other platform and like, not many people are willing to sacrifice what he sacrificed for it. But like ultimately, if governments feel like no one will expose what they're doing, they will justify their actions more easily. While if they feel like there's always a chance that certain thing, documents and so on is going to get published on platforms like WikiLeaks, they will always be a bit more skeptical because we've seen it demonstrated throughout our history as well as today. Power does corrupt. And they should be faced accountable because ultimately most people do not have the interests of the public, but they have their own interests. You know, the crazy thing about the whole Assange situation for me is that, uh, well, Assange essentially came out representing the protection of press freedom. 
But at the same time, the way he is framed in the media is actually changing over time and it's being more and more negative. Um, and uh, we can see this just through the uh, Association of French Press or the Associated Press who are framing Assange as a whistleblower and as a free speech advocate, uh, while Reuters framed him as a criminal and as a security threat. And this is changing towards more and more negativity as the years pass on. I mean, did you see like, uh, even like when you have powerful institutions like the CIA, the spokesman for the CIA went on TV, he was like, he doesn't believe in the death penalty, but like if he, so we should illegally shoot that son of a bitch. <laughs> That's what he said when he was speaking about Julian Assange, you know? So well, those are the people running the CIA, you know, like the, the, obviously the big media corporations around America and so on are going to be forced to kind of like shh on these types of talking. Yeah, and even the, the New York Times actually in a study was found to be more critical of WikiLeaks and more leery of internet freedom of expression uh, than the Washington Post itself. And uh, news uh, news organizations like Le Monde framed Assange as a journalist, while Le Figaro, for example, in France, which is a bit more right-leaning, uh, framed, um, framed, Assange as, uh, framed Assange and was a bit more critical of WikiLeaks as a whole. And so what we can see with all of this is that even within the media and the media agenda, it's still being set by these big institutions and it's still being, uh, well, press freedom is not necessarily the main priority. Okay, but I think I think it's quite understandable why the media may have certain sort of things against Julian Assange, not only concerning his rape allegations, but also uh, just overall as a personality, he seems to not be liked by so many people. And I think, Jules, you may have some insights actually about the whole rape allegations. Uh, so yeah, uh, concerning the rape, basically what happened is that the case has been dropped by now. Uh, he did admit that he removed the condom during uh, the act. And also that like one of the charge was about him having sex with uh, a person while she was sleeping. Basically, he also admitted to that which is considered as rape, uh, even though the charge have, charges have been dropped. But also one thing to take into account is that in Sweden, the rape laws uh, are kind of more complicated, I mean, more complex than like another country in Europe, for example, just because there's like uh, different levels of rape according to their laws. So, yeah. yeah. I guess it goes back to like the whole topic of conversation that we had earlier, which is that, you know, like while these criticism of him are obviously valid, you know, that doesn't brush away from the journalistic values he stood for, even though he might not be the greatest guy. Attacking his character like that to make him go quiet is also like a common tactic used as we you reference other examples. And even though he might be a piece of shit, he was a piece of shit that tended to leak a lot of important information that was of the benefit of like humanity, you know? Yeah, but I think not all of that information was actually to the benefit of humanity. And arguably, I think what he did in Turkey where where he actually put women in Turkey in danger for absolutely no reason. And of course, this is coming from a research done by Zeynep uh, Tufekci. And I'm sorry for obviously butchering this Turkish name, but she's an associate professor from the School of Information and Library Sciences at the University of North Carolina. And she published, uh, uh, she she is quite a person that's quite critical of the whole WikiLeaks uh, situation and whistleblowers. And uh, what actually happened was that WikiLeaks published around 300,000 emails claimed to be the Erdogan emails. 
but no significant information was actually uncovered. And instead, what was actually posted was a bunch of leaked data, uh, uh, including sensitive information such as home addresses, cell phone numbers, and Turkish citizenship IDs of uh, nearly almost all adult women in Turkey. And so this kind of really put and jeopardized these women's stability and safety within the Turkish, well, country yeah or even like to, to another example was with the whole like afghan papers that were leaked a lot of names that were apparently quite agreed upon to be like protected and censored to for the safety of the afghan people that were wa- working with the u.s government and so on were just dropped full named and while wikileaks and uh, uh, julian assange didn't take responsibility said that they have no evidence that anyone came to harm because of these leakages of names ultimately like it was a bit poor practice and not taking responsibility and definitely needing to defend certain people that where their lives can be in jeopardy Of course, and uh, just to, out of curiosity, have you ever thought about the possibility that this could possibly de- be the end of government transparency with WikiLeaks? Uh, I mean, like the thing is, uh, like using Julian Assange as an example, you know, like the way he's been treated, the way he's been prosecuted, everything that happened towards him and WikiLeaks, the the way the uh, the criticisms it faced and so on. I think, yeah, I think that ultimately, like, it painted a reality that, like, if you want to be someone like Julian Assange or some, do something similar, like, go against something as big as U- U.S. national security, as at least that's how they frame it, you better be ready to, like, not live the life you once lived, you know, sacrifice everything. I mean, he was stuck in an embassy for seven years, you know, like, they really wanted him gone you know and he's probably not the same today he's in prison but i assume if you're stuck in a room for so long you can't be the same person anymore you know and yeah i i think if i would be someone that would look at exposing certain types of information done by any nation and i would see how he's been treated i would probably be like maybe that's not the best idea yeah and i think uh, there's these researchers that were arguing about this uh the 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 premise of radical transparency in a way and sort of by it being misguided by these assumptions. Um, so this researcher points out to the idea that there is this illusion of transparency that is created by WikiLeaks where some people now think that uh, there is a quick technological fix to these uh, this corruption issues or to holding the governments accountable. And he argues that the leak uh, and publish and wait for outrage strategy is kind of flawed and that the public needs to be actively engaged in parsing and making sense of the raw data itself. Um, and so some of these researchers conclude that the battle for transparency is a bit more dynamic uh, and the government's response to WikiLeaks may ultimately lead to tighter secrecy policy policies and not necessarily more transparency. So that's kind of the fear that some researchers have, which is that um, it's actually going to make our governments more secretive and protect their um, sort of classified information a bit more instead of leading to them being more transparent. I mean... To be honest, I think the bar was just very low. You know, governments were always very secretive and stuff. And at least the fear that something might get leaked might be a, a better driving factor than not, you know. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of criticisms of Julian Assange and Wiki, WikiLeaks and they definitely didn't handle their operations perfectly. But ultimately, not only did they expose a lot of crime, and I'll reference a quote I said earlier, which is like, if exposing a crime is being treated as a crime, you're being run by criminals, which is what Snowden said. 
And ultimately, yeah, they could have done a lot of things better, but I think having a platform where people feel safe to leak information is important because it will allow for like breaches of power and so on to be held accountable to a greater extent. Of course, but I think it's also important to remember that uh, the media, much like much like most of our institutions, have an agenda that they must be protecting. And the media does not necessarily tell us how to think about things, but it tells us what to think about. And this is also apparent even with uh, the Julian Assange and what he did himself. And, and actually, in 2019, there was this list that was published, and uh, it was uh, WikiLeaks sent journalists a confidential legal communication uh, that is not for publication. And it was a list of 140 things uh, not to say about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that were false and defamatory or the defamatory. And this list included things that, uh, well, for example, things like uh, Assange was a smelly person or things like he bleached his hair or he tortured animals or that he lived in a basement, a cupboard uh, or under the stairs. Um, and soon after this list actually leaked online, WikiLeaks posted a heavily edited version of it. And uh, of course, the whole group was criticized and mocked for the list and the handling of the whole situation. Because right. it's like we criticize the media for not having certain items on their agenda. But at the same time, this media that claims itself to be fully pluralistic has an agenda itself of protecting the person behind it. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest here. WikiLeaks' reputation definitely took like got the damage significantly with all the examples we just mentioned, you know, but ultimately like I would still weigh it as something like a factor for good, even though all the criticisms of it is valid, but ultimately journalism should aim to aspire to leak, like to have access to information and be open to do with that information as they please without necessarily facing that many consequences and especially not as consequences as drastic as those of Julian Assange. Of course, and I think what's important to remember, especially with this whole Julian Assange situation, is that I think there was this quote from a, from an ex-Nazi uh, supporter um, who eventually left the, the Nazi sort of uh, group because um, he disagreed with the whole Christian um, link that they brought into society. And although it's not necessarily important who is saying this, but I more found this interesting to bring up because he said something around the lines of, uh, it, it is not uh, like when they, when they attack the unionists, I am not a worker, so I don't feel the need to say something. When they attack uh, these people, the socialists, I am not a socialist, so I don't feel the need to speak up. And I think the same thing applies to Julian Assange. Sure, all of us may not be whistleblowers or all of us may not be journalists, but we don't feel the need to talk about things and speak up uh, until they start impacting us. And I think Julian Assange's case just sets a precedent for the rest of the, for, for the rest, for journalists worldwide in the sense of if he is persecuted and if he does end up going to a prison in the US, it does set this precedent that's not necessarily great for press freedom worldwide. And I think that's why it's important to be talking about Julian Assange. And that's what we were hoping to bring you on this podcast, um, episode nine of the Digital Storm podcast. We were hoping to just shed light on what Julian Assange was doing, but also shed light on overall the importance of press freedom, our common myths that we have about them, and the realities about the situation that the press faces around the world. We brought up examples from Morocco, the same way we brought up examples of Mexico and of uh, Edward Snowden in the US and of all of these different whistleblowers worldwide. So I think as an overall message to end this podcast on, 
I think just make sure to stay aware and know where you're getting your information overall. Yeah, and especially know that there's a lot of people that are that made drastic sacrifices for in in terms of what, how they pursue it is the greater good. But obviously, th- those ideas can be like attacked with a degree of skepticism. But ultimately, we should always aim for a more transparent and free society where we can the exchange different information and have access to what's actually happening around the world. But with that being said, I would like to thank you, thank everyone for listening. This has been our ninth episode of the Digital Storm Podcast. Uh, if you liked what you were listening to, please check us out on the Digital Storm Podcast at, on Instagram, as well as check out our website at fikra.studio. And if you have, if you ever have any ideas and you would like to reach out for new episode ideas and so on, just hit us up on Instagram. And thank you very much for, for listening. Thank you and peace.